You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. We're going to be in John. Uh, That's a series we're going through called Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to be in John chapter 2. This morning, man, um, when things don't happen according to plan, I get super frustrated really fast. You know, when you got everything planned out and then something is thrown at you that you didn't plan for, and I will say, there was not my, it's not my finest moments when you're driving a trailer down Town Line Road in Cambridge and you hear the tire pop. It's not a fine moment from Aaron Ottaway. It's not, Lord, we're going to be okay. There's a, there's a moment of extreme frustration uh, reminding me of most weeks in our home office because I typically work from home. Those of you who know this and have kids, you might be able to relate to this. But my kids take over my office. And every time I go into my office, there's glitter on my desk. There's glue on my desk. There's pieces of construction paper all over the floor. And I'm like, who messed up my office? You know, this is, now i got to clean it up before I can work. And so sometimes, though, God throws those things at you. Maybe that's a weekly thing, a daily thing for you, or for us it was this morning as a church. But sometimes God throws a necessary, almost deconstruction or destruction of your plans for our good. And you're going to see that in the passage this morning. So John chapter 2, verse 12, actually 13, I'll start verse 12, sure, says this. After this, he went down to Capernaum. So remember last week, he was at a wedding in Cana. He goes down to a place called Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, with his family and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Sometime later, and there's a lot of debate about this, but I'm not going to enter into that debate. Sometime was the Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 13. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. It was the first time I noticed that in this story. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or literally into a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Now they're utterly confused. So the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it again in three days? That's crazy. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, but when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. God, man, we ask that you would show yourself through these, this passage this morning, whatever it is that needs to happen in the soul of every person here, that that would happen. That they would be open to your word, to your leading. Uh, and that we would get a clearer view of who Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth is, and we would want to follow him and put our trust in him. We pray for this in your name. Amen. It's a, I know this passage. I've known it. I've been a part of the church for a long time. Uh, so if you are new this uh, today, you're probably like, what is going on in this passage? However, to an extent, even if you've been in church for a long time, your first reaction should probably be like, what is going on in this passage? Because that's kind of the nature of the passage. Last week, we were in a wedding. You know, a wedding in a place called Cana, and we were encouraged by the one who brings joy and celebration. And at the end, we were anticipating, man, we, let's anticipate the glory of God, that he is the master of the feast, the giver of good gifts, and at the very same time, and in this same person, is this. This is literally the next passage. You know, the one who fills the table with good things. Then in the next passage, what does he do with the table? He flips it over. The same person. It's not some different person. It's the same person at the very same time. And in the same person is this passage. The one who upsets our assumptions. The one who refuses to ignore false understandings. Or Tim Keller once said, the same one who fills the table with goodness will flip that table over. The one who saves the party in the last passage, in last week, he kills a party in this one. You know? That would kill a party. Someone walks in and starts flipping tables over. That's going to kill a party. You got, it's the same person. This is the Jesus of Nazareth that we are here to see. And I want to say this. It's not that Jesus is moody. And we put ourselves too much in the shoes of Jesus. Like he's just moody. He's having a bad day. What, what, did he not sleep last night? Slept on the wrong side of the, on the, wrong side of the bed, I think they say. What, he's not moody. It's not one day he's feeling happy and the next day he's grouchy because he didn't sleep very well or he's hangry. Like you or I might be. You know, you just avoid that. You just avoid him until he calms down, until he's in a right framework. You give him something, to eat, give him a snack to eat, have a Snickers bar, and everything's good again. Like that's not what that's not what's going on here with Jesus. Now, this isn't two different people or two different personalities. And the point is this. And the point I want to say is this: It's not like you need both sides of Jesus. I, I think the point is just you need all of Jesus. You need a clear picture of who Jesus is. Some of you really loved the passage last week. Yes, Jesus is the giver of good gifts. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I want this kind of Jesus, though. Let's just focus on last week. I should have skipped this Sunday. Some of you were uncomfortable last week. You know, maybe you're part of a pretty, you know, uh, traditional religious system. that tend to be very transactional in your religion. And you don't really like the Jesus who gives good gifts. But you're good with this one. You like the you like the angry Jesus, you know. You like the Jesus on social media that's you know that's ragging on everything. You like that kind of Jesus, but you don't like you don't like last week's Jesus. The point is, you need all of them. 
And I love that John, the writer of this gospel, puts these two stories together. Because you get two very different views of who he is. The Lord who sees into the human soul better than you do, you need the Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus at the wedding and the Jesus at the temple. Now the temple might mean nothing to you, but that's where we find Jesus in this passage. And in 2024 Canada, for you sitting here at Restoration Church, the word temple might mean absolutely nothing to you, and a wedding is far more relatable. However, I would say this. Even though it seems like on the surface the wedding is far more contemporary, it's actually not. I mean, yes, it is. But the temple is far more contemporary than you think it is, even though it may have no, you may have no context for it. You know that you need the temple, and it's incredibly relatable. The ancients knew why the temple was so proud, profound. The temple was the place of connection with God. This is where God dwells. This is the place where God dwells. We've often referred to that in an interesting word called Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah is never actually found in the Bible. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, but the word Shekinah is never found in the Bible. It was a word that was coined by rabbis later to describe the phenomena or the manifestation of the presence of God in the temple. Something similar going along in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 when Solomon built the temple. That was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago, this man Solomon, king over Israel, built this beautiful temple. And it says as Solomon finished praying and dedicating that temple, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up all of the sacrifices that they had made. The glory of the Lord, and the rabbis called that the Shekinah glory of the Lord, filled the temple so the priests couldn't even enter. And all the people watching, uh, they, they fell flat on their faces, flat on the pavement, and worshipped and thanked the Lord. They said how good He is, they exclaimed. He is so loving and kind. That was the glory of God. That's, but this is where God dwells. The temple is where God is. This is the place. If you want to connect with God, you go to the temple. There's a place of connection with God. Now, in our modern era, sometimes arrogantly, we think, oh, that's archaic. This is what the ancients believed. That's an archaic form. We, we're past that. We are more advanced than they were in the ancients. But really, it's not. You know, for as much as modernism has sought to conclude that all life can be exclaimed through natural means, the appetite of the world for the spiritual or the supernatural is still there, according to statistics. And the fact that you're here today means that all of your burning questions can't be explained just by natural means. You know, that love is not just a chemical reaction, or that uh, our existence isn't just hopelessly floating through some sort of space. That there's a point to all of this. That the natural uh, means are unsatisfactory to explain the burning questions of life, of who you are, and why you are here. In your presence today, at least to a degree, is seeking to answer some of those burning questions. But that was what the temple was. 
Now we think we're past that, but in some like that's what the temple represented. This is the place where no other answers can be, like no other uh, no there's no other uh, answers that can be found. This is the this is the place of connection with God. This is who I am and why I'm here. This is what the temple was. It was where God in person, divine and human, uh, uh, the ultimate human longing was found in the temple. And so when Jesus arrives in verse 13, you know, they went up to Jerusalem, Jesus with family and his disciples, which was normal. At Passover, most people pilgrimaged to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifice. You don't know this, the background of Passover. Passover was a celebration of the time when God saved his people from the angel of death back in Exodus by killing a lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost and saying, the lamb is taking your place so that you can be spared. The blood of the lamb saved you from death. That's what Passover was. So every Passover, what they would do is offer sacrifice for God saving them from death. That's why you would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to do that. And people would come from afar. And what they would do is, you know, if you're coming from wherever, India, Saudi Arabia, wherever it is, you got a long way to go to Jerusalem. And rather than bringing your lamb with you or your pigeon with you, what they would do is they would go and someone would have a booth at the temple. You'd be like, oh, I'm just going to buy that one and sacrifice that Land. So on the surface, it doesn't seem like anything's really wrong. It doesn't seem like anything unethical is going on. But in verse 14, we find Jesus goes into the temple. And look what it says. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So people who would, uh, you know, you'd hand them uh, this currency and they would trade it for the Jewish currency. All of those things were going on like they do today. Jesus sees this, and in verse 15, this blew me, like, even though I've read this, it starts making a whip out of court. This is Jesus. He starts fashioning a whip. I've never noticed that before. That was, I was like, wait a minute, is Jesus making a whip in this passage? Yes. He says, it says in verse 15, and making a whip of cords or reeds, he drives everyone out of the temple. I don't know what that scene looked like. I can't really picture it. No one, I don't, I did, there's that new document, not documentary, it's not real, it's a series that didn't go back and film what happened 2,000 years ago. But there's that series that showed, I don't know if they did, I don't know if they did this scene or not. I can't even picture it in my head of Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, loving Jesus, Cleansing the temple by clearing everyone out, holding a whip in his hand. It's hard to even picture. Fashioning a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And not only that, as he's driving everyone out of the temple, he starts picking up the coins that the money changers are collecting, starts pouring them on the ground, and then starts turning tables over. You're like, what? This is out of control. I don't know if it's completely out of control. I don't have I don't have all the context of what's going on, but this is this 
This kind of pushes your you know, assumptions of who Jesus was a little bit. I kind of like the Jesus who was serving wine until 2 in the morning. I don't know if I like this Jesus. That's what it says, though. You know, you wonder what the disciples are thinking. Now, what's he doing? Now, in context, I don't think the whip is like he's intended to use it on people. Like, I think it was one of the ones he used as an animal. You know, he just hit the animal, they drive him out. That's what he's doing. But still, like, what is Jesus doing here? Like, I can't imagine if someone started doing that at Restoration Church, like, we would call the police. You know, like, this person needs to be removed from the room immediately. You can't even picture it. So what is he doing? In verse 16, it says this. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Literally how you could translate that is don't make my father's house into a marketplace, into a shopping mall. It doesn't seem that the issue is that it was unethical practice. That there was corruption going on. You know, go home. Jesus didn't say, go home, clean this up, and come back with a clean business. That's not what he said. It doesn't seem like the problem was unethical practice. It seems like the problem was that the meaning of the sacrifice, the meaning that they were there altogether, had been lost. Rather than the sounds of worship and prayer was the sounds of commerce business. It seems to be what's going on. Rather than coming to the place of God, which was the intention of the temple, this is where God dwells. They were playing with religion. That's why Jesus got so upset. Rather than coming to the place of God to commune with God, they were playing with religion. So what is Jesus doing? I think he reacts the way that he does because it is very possible. It is very possible. And many of you know this, because especially those who have been to church for a long time, you are susceptible to this just as much, if not more, than anyone else. It is possible to be active in religiosity and religious practice, but completely miss the meaning and not commune with God. That's possible. It's possible to fill your life with religious practice, but not commune with God. And miss the meaning of why you're doing it all together. In fact, that enraged Jesus. That they were missing out on the point. And of course, this is not an ancient problem. It's a very contemporary one as well. Here's what can happen. Here's what can happen. Even to us, Restoration Church, and maybe to you as well. Here's what can happen. Religious Religion can be simply business. Religion can be simply business. As I explained... Uh, what was happening to these people as they went to the temple rather than bring their sheep. They would go into the temple, you know, think of it this way. Just like 
a little bit different in church, but think about maybe how you would treat a Sunday morning. Enter the temple, check. Buy my sheep or my pigeon, depending on which my hand. Check. Pray to the priest, check. Sacrifice done, check. Passover finished. That's what it was. I did it. I did my religious practice. Move on. But that's more of a business transaction than a religion. You know, what was supposed to point you to God, that this animal is taking on your sin to give, to, to sacrifice on behalf of you. That's what the blood was supposed to remind you of, that this thing is taking on the sacrifice so that I don't have to make it, that I can be forgiven and have life, becomes simply a religious transaction of goods and services. Man, this can easily happen in church. Again, it can easily happen in church. So easily happen in church. As we are active in church, you know, we show up, check, they are, they are giving, check. You know, whatever it is, serve on the, not to pick on the worship team, I'm not specifically picking on you, but just sing, sing a song, check. Go on, check. I did what God required of me today. I did my religious offering, my religious practice. But then when things don't go the way we want, we start saying things like, God, I did all of these things for you. You know what I'm saying? God, I, I thought if I did these things for you, then I would get what I want. That's not how the, any of this works, though. Rather than commune with God, it's a religious transaction of goods and services. There's a play on the word house when Jesus says, take these things away, don't make my father's house into a house of trade. This was supposed to be personal between father and children. But God's like, you're not here for me. Like, you don't even need me. You go into the temple, the dwelling of God, and God himself wasn't really invited. It's like, we got it all taken care of. We'll take it from here, God. You don't even need to show up. You know, we remove the mystery, the presence, the prayer, and the church becomes a commercial to sell its goods and services. That means we're playing with religion. But God becomes not our father, but our employer. If that's what our religious practice is. God becomes, our God becomes not our father, but our employer. And if that's the case in your life, if God is more employer than father to you, then Jesus will flip tables. He will flip tables. Secondly, not only can religion become a business, religion can become a system. An authoritative establishment. Look what it says in verse 18. There's some Jews after Jesus drives them out of the temple. It says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us to do these things? If I could translate that, basically what they're saying is like, what credentials do you have to, to, to do these things, to drive out and change the way that we do things here in the temple? What credentials do you have? Show us, show us your badge, show us your honor. What credentials do you have? It's interesting that they don't ask him why he's doing what he's doing or to reflect on whether this was justified. They were only interested in what authority do you have to change the way that we do things here? 
What right do you have to come in here and tell us what to do? They're less concerned about worship and more concerned about precedent. They're less concerned about worship, more concerned about precedent. Now to sympathize before we get too hard on these Jewish leaders. <laughs> I'll pick on myself. Maybe I'll pick on Greg. His family's not here. And he just renovated his part of his home. Think of this. Greg, I can start coming into your house. Start moving the furniture around. That doesn't go in. This goes over here. What is this color on this? This, is, this isn't this color. It should be this color. I start changing it. How do you respond to that, Greg? stuff around. You know, you forget. Like my office, when my kids start moving my table, my office desk around, I freak out. This is my desk. Don't mess up my desk. But that's why they freaked out the way. They, what credentials do you have to move things the way that you want them to be moved? They saw Jesus' truth claims as a power play, as a threat to their own authority. As a threat to themselves. I mean, many would argue to say it's a very postmodern thought that any truth claim is a power play of authority. And truth tends to be missed because of that. And we all have baggage, or some of you more than others, where you've seen church or religion used uh, as a power play of authority in the wrong way. But more personally, we start to see Jesus the same way. If Jesus came into your heart's home in your life and started to move stuff around. This is where we don't want to see the Jesus of Nazareth. And this is where we're like, no, I'm, I'm going to choose which passages I like Jesus to be and which passages I'm just going to leave Jesus out of. This is where we don't want to see the Jesus of Nazareth. Once he starts moving stuff around and flipping over our tables, like I don't, I don't want that Jesus of Nazareth. I don't want that. If, he, if it means that he's taking away my authority, I don't want it. But that's exactly what's happening. Like Jesus said, I have authority. I am God. This is where we struggle. This is where the sticking point always is. Like, if Jesus can't move the furniture of your life, if you don't allow him to do that, here's what I would say. You don't want a God. Like, if I don't want Jesus to move the furniture of my life around, I don't want a God. I want an Amazon delivery guy that will give me exactly what I ordered, but I don't want a God who reorders my life for me, who knows me better than I know myself. You don't want God as your father. You might want him as your Amazon delivery worker, but not as your father. I know i got to wrap this up, 
Both of these things are true in what was happening in the temple. Jesus is the one who undergoes shame in order to disrupt the necessary changes in the truth assumptions that we have. It's fascinating that the disciples later on, John, John puts like a reflection in verse 17. He says, disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's, it's kind of a weird quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. It's where David, who writes that song, the context is that, you know, he's a zeal for your house is consuming me, but the context is like, I have become a stranger, people are making fun of me, I am the talk of the town in a bad way, not in a good way, the drunk make up songs about me, they have shamed me because of the things that I have done, because of the zeal that guides me. The reason it says Jesus, what he did, what he did, is says, I have zeal for this house and it consumes me. That word zeal comes from the word heat, like he's warm. It's a passion for true meaning to stop playing with religion and commune with God, that the longings of the human heart would no longer go unsatisfied, that the temple would be what it was always meant to be. And if Jesus doesn't flip, start flipping tables, we are at risk, serious risk, of missing the entire point. Deconstruction, which is a used word, a, a word used a lot in our day, but in some degree is necessary for seeing the real Jesus. There are things that we have to deconstruct in our lives in order to see the real Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here in the temple. He is literally tearing it down in order for people to see the true reason why they're there. Jesus always causes it. You know, you've grown up and all you've seen and all you've heard is religion as a business transaction or religion as a power play, but the point is to see Jesus clearer. That's it, to commune with God and to receive his grace. See, the problem with deconstruction is that C.S. Lewis has talked about years ago is that you can't just go seeing through something in order to see through something in order to see through something in order to see through something. The point of seeing through something is to see something on the other side is to see the garden on the other side of the window. The point of seeing through something is to see the garden on the other side. It's to see the real Jesus. This is what Jesus says about himself. In verse 19, Jesus answered them. He said, what sign do you have for doing these things? And Jesus says to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now they have no idea what he's talking about. What are you talking about? It's taken like 47 years to build this temple, and it's not even a good one. The one that existed before was much better. This is just like a this is just like a, a a cheap model of the one that existed before, and yet it still took us 46 years to build this thing. What are you talking about? You're going to destroy this temple in three days? You're going to build it up again? They don't know what he's talking about. John puts in the explanation, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He said, you don't own the temple. Jesus is like, own it. I am it. Not that I just own the temple that I have authority. I am this. The temple was the place for, of all human longings. To connect with God. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am that place where you connect with God. Where you find your true purpose and true meaning for why you exist in the first place. That's me. 
In me is the place of all true worship. If you want to see God, see me. Jesus says, it will, I will it will, this temple will be destroyed in three days I will raise it up. And that's not cryptic. Of course, he's talking about that he would die, his body would die, and in three days he would be raised up again. This is not some religious transaction, Jesus is saying. This is, I am giving myself freely to you. Freely to you, by my grace. Not, it's not just a religious transaction, nor is it some authoritative system. The living abode of God dwells here in me. That's who I am. This is the Jesus of Nazareth who was willing to turn everything up head over heels in order to show us that. Let me close in prayer. Lord, there's probably some in the room now who kind of feel that way. You know, they, maybe they don't feel the Jesus at the wedding, but maybe, maybe man, they feel the Jesus at the temple. It's uncomfortable. You're tearing over tables, pouring out coins. What is, what is going on? Lord, I pray that through this, that we would see clearly who Jesus is, that he is the place of our connection with God. He is the source of all of our human longing for who we are and why we are here. It is found in Him. Lord, I pray. I look at my own heart. There have been so many Sundays, so many days of the week where I have treated you as a transaction. I'm going to do my service in order to get from you what I want. That's plain religion. There are times when you have started to turn over tables in my life. And I respond with, you can't tell me what to do. You have no authority. What kind of credentials do you have? When I repent of these things, this attitude, it is by your grace that you have given your body to us, to us, that we could be with God. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would, would have a clearer vision of who you are. Lord, if there are some in this room who do not know you, maybe they've been to church for 40 years but have played with religion the whole time. I pray that today they would say, I'm, I'm done with that. I want to follow Jesus. He has given me everything by his grace. No strings attached. I want to follow Jesus today. I pray that that would happen. God, thank you for stripping our service back today. By your wisdom, for stripping our service back that nothing has gone according to Aaron Hawley's plan for this Sunday morning. In some ways, as those people entered the temple, it did not go according to their plan either. And yet Jesus showed them something of way more important than their plan. He showed them himself. I pray that today we have a clearer vision of you. We pray for all of these things in your great name. Amen.
Let's stand and sing in response. Yeah, no.